Hi, I'm Mark Lynch of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the Pomaps Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars in the field. Uh, with me today is Hind Ahmed Zeki, a PhD student at the University of Washington. Uh, Hind, welcome to Pomaps. Uh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So um, why don't you just uh, start by telling us uh, a little bit about your dissertation, the research you've been doing, and what you think is interesting about it. Uh, well, um, I've been doing uh, research on uh, feminists and uh, women's rights uh, mobilization in the course of the Arab Spring. Uh, my dissertation, in my dissertation, I'm very interested in looking at the type of uh, women rights, mobilization around women rights mm -hmm. in general uh, in the course of the Arab Spring. And I'm motivated by a very clear um, goal here. The Arab Spring had been printed uh, very much as bad for women in general um, because mostly of the rise of Islamists, because of the um, like breakdown of state institutions and the security situation. Um, so if, we, if you look at popular media, for example, there's always this uh, stories about how the Arab Spring is bad for women, that women are suffering. Uh, while definitely there had been very unfortunate consequences of the Arab Spring, I felt that this is not the full story, and there is a there is a need for a, a story to be told. There is an interesting story going on, and it needs to be told, and that's about grassroots mobilization around women's rights mm -hmm. uh, in many of these countries. I specifically look at Egypt and Tunisia uh, in my dissertation, so I'm looking at um, all of the forms of mobilizations that are emerging. How are they connected to earlier forms of mobilizations, and particularly particularly hegemonic understandings? of uh, rights, whether state feminism, uh, state feminism as broadly defined, or more broader societal and political and legal understandings. So I'm really looking at uh, the new and trying to see elements of the old in the new, and also looking at all these new, very exciting mobilizations and how they are changing our uh, broader understanding of politics. Well, give, a, give us an example. Like, What do you think is a really good example of one of these movements, these new forms of mobilization? Uh, one of them, and that's what I'm kind of like interested in and writing about right now, is the mobilization around uh, gender-based violence in particular. And uh, in Tunisia, this is happening around a number of, uh, in a number of sites, I would say. One very interesting site is the Truth and Dignity uh, Commission. Um, the Truth and Dignity Commission had been established a couple of years ago in Tunisia uh, with a wide mandate of uh, seeking justice for uh, victims of torture and victims of state abuse since the independence of Tunisia, since the Tunisian independence. Uh, early on, nobody expected that the uh, Truth and Dignity Commission would be bombarded with uh, testimonies from women who had been sexually particularly sexually, but also other forms of gender-based abuse at the hands of the state agents. Uh, these people, uh, these women range very much. I had talked to a number of them. Uh, they range very much, in, uh, they are very different in, uh, from different kind of uh, mm -hmm. societal backgrounds. Many of them are Islamists, of course, uh, who had been tortured either because they belong to Al-Nahda, uh, the uh, major Islamic movement there, or because they had been members of the families or something like that. So they are either targeted because of their own political mm -hmm. uh, involvement or, be, or by association with male members of their families. Uh, this is kind of a very interesting thing because it kind of, the truth and the, the politics or the gendered politics of the Truth and Dignity Commission sort of stands at the intersection of looking at uh, trans, transnational justice and what's wrong with mm -hmm. it, uh, also state uh, and legal 
legacies and how they are influencing rights. But also it shows how also women are mobilizing to kind of use this new institution to push for more rights what, and to hold the state accountable. What really struck me, uh, one line in, uh, in, in your paper really struck me, that you said that, that everybody pretty much knew that there was this uh, sexual violence against women under the Ben Ali regime by the state, but that people were absolutely staggered by the magnitude of it. And, yep. and yep. to me, that's actually quite interesting yep. that, uh, you know, everyone knows it's happening, but once the numbers start coming out and the systematic nature of it, that people were actually, frankly, shocked, is, yeah. what, is what I took away from that part of your paper. Yeah, exactly. Um, that was a big part of it. And I think... The fact that a lot of individual women, so it was kind of mobilization on the individual level first, that many of them saw this as their mm-hmm. chance for getting peace, uh, for, for getting justice, or even for just getting a sense of acknowledgement for what happened to them. Um, and because the numbers were very staggering, uh, and it actually affected the procedures of the uh, commission itself, mm-hmm. because the commission was not ready to deal with gender why, why, why did so many women come forward? Uh, were people encouraging them to do so, or was this like a series of individual decisions? I think it was both. I think there was an individual, like on the individual level, there were many women who saw this, particularly from mm-hmm. the Islamist camp, who saw this as their chance of kind of coming forward and telling their stories. Um, but also there had been a number, and this is kind of, maybe this did not come across in my paper very much, but there's a number of newly organized coalitions and women organization that are actually uh, collecting those testimonies. So they were reaching out to people. They are reaching out to people, they are collecting testimonies, and they are sending those files. So it's kind of like, it's like a snowball, Mm. um, in a way, where they are kind of collecting these things, and the more there's uh, news about it, the more... Um, encouraged other 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 individual women come forward. But but you, you you say in the paper that uh, a number of people invested in the democratic transition were very uncomfortable about this for yep. the, all the yep. classic yep. reasons yep. associated with Truth and Justice yep. commissions. Yes, yeah, exactly. And in this case, Tunisia kind of falls very much, unlike the rest of the region, into um, you know literature about democratic transitions mm-hmm. and whether the rule of law and gender justice necessarily go hand in hand with democratization. Should we just sweep all this aside so we can get on? So we can get on. And uh, what was a really interesting part was the politics inside in Nahda itself. Because what I heard uh, based on my fieldwork, and I did about 80 interviews uh, throughout the course of a year, uh, many of the uh, lower-ranked men and women had had expressed... Uh, frustration at the decision of their leaders mm-hmm. to actually sweep these things under the carpet. As you know, uh, the political settlement in Tunisia is very tenuous, mm-hmm. and people are very scared of rocking the boat. Um, and I think Nahda wanted very much to engage in a politics of sort of uh, settlement with uh, Nidat, to settlement with the other uh, factions. And I think this had really affected their decision uh, to make this an issue on the public agenda. This is frustrating many of their um, mm-hmm. of their members, and it's interesting to see how this will unfold in the future. Well, so in, t- in Tunisia, of course, there's very intense polarization between Anatta and Nidatunis, and you know, in, in my experience there, women's movements have been quite hostile to Anatta. Do they find common ground in this question of sexual violence? And has this been something which has allowed the women's movement and uh, and, and these Anahta women to connect in new ways? 
Um, that was one of the most interesting points that I was trying to kind of get at when I was there. Unfortunately, I didn't see this happening that much. That's interesting. Um, there are. I talked to both sides, and I did interviews on both sides, and it seems to me that they are very, both are very distrustful of each other. Um, and Nahdawi, the Nahdawi women feel, and they are kind of justified about this, to be frank, that many of the women rights organizations had not really taken this issue seriously. They had not really attempted to talk to them. They had not attempted to uh, talk about the, the systematic abuse of the Islamists. Um, the women rights organization, on the other hand, feel that the Islamists had been launching a vicious campaign against them since the fall of the Ben Ali regime, accusing them of being pawns of the old regime, accusing them of basically uh, letting go or um, of, of making use of Tunisia, Tunisia's mm -hmm. state feminism, which has like a long history that goes back to Bourguiba and the personal mm -hmm. status quo of 1956, um, which is kind of an interesting topic in and of itself. Um, but they feel very much that they had let them down and that they are not willing to talk to them about it. There are some attempts. Uh, there have been some talks um, hosted by even international um, mm -hmm. par parties. I don't see this as emerging as a consensus, at from, least in the near future. From, I hope from, what, from what you've seen, whether you know from your interviews or from the testimonies at the commission, um, is it really imbalanced in the sense that uh, Islamist women experience sexual violence significantly more often than mm -hmm. the, the secular women? Or is it something which was used kind of roughly equally against th political opponents I think regardless? Was, yeah, I think it was used roughly equally in terms of political in against political mm -hmm. opponents. And I don't think there was really a difference in how the state and how the state security and the Muhabarat under Ben Ali did mm -hmm. that. Uh, however, the, the numbers of Islamist women who had come forward are larger, in that, that's for sure, are bigger. Uh, that might have been the case simply because the Nahda is, has more members than many of the secular or leftist parties. That so, doesn't so mean there's that, no way to know whether it's disproportionate in terms of I, the I actual abuse. I don't think it abuse. was target. I don't think it was a target. They, I don't think they were targeting Islamists per se. Or you think they, they were just targeting women they as part targeting, of the general... They were targeting as women or they were using gender as part of uh, targeting the opposition. Uh, the numbers might have been different because of mm -hmm. the the proportional difference between the size of the Islamist movement and the size of the other. Movement. Is there any sense that uh, the practices of the Wahhabarat or the police have changed since the revolution? Has sexual violence stopped being a, you know, a, a method or or not? That's from what we know. Yeah, that's something. Um, I think, I think we can't have a yes or no answer for that. Definitely, there's now people are more aware of what's going on, and I think this is kind of making the security. And there's more, um, I would say, popular surveillance of what's mm -hmm. going on on popular uh, media. Um, and so I don't think it's as systematic or as widespread as it was under Ben Ali, for sure. That said, uh, there have been a number of incidents that kind of give us a real indicator in, that this has not gone completely. Um, even in terms of like the use uh, and abuse of power on part mm -hmm. of the police, which is, be, which is in general, is one of the most, like, thorn points or left out points of the Tunisian transition. Um, mm -hmm. And Nahda and the Islamists had called upon for a real change of the state, for a real reform of the security sector. Uh, this doesn't seem to be happening until now, and maybe a part, and maybe also 
one of the uh, prices of the pact or the tenuous settlement between the Nahda and the Tunis is not to actually really engage in that. Well, so what is the ultimate uh, outcome of the Truth and Dignity Commission supposed to be? Is it actually supposed to bring the perpetrators to justice? Or is this one of the commissions where, you know, people are allowed to publicize what happened, but there's a general amnesty for the perpetrators? Because, yeah, as you know, there's different models yeah, yeah, of, of, of accountability. Yeah, sure. Um, I think in the beginning, uh, the idea was that the Truth and Dignity Commission would be modeled along the South African model which mm-hmm. is of the Truth and Dignity, uh, of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, which is basically amnesty and truth yeah. uh, over justice, mm-hmm. as having a priority over justice. Um, that's another sworn point because there are differences in the way, and I deal a little bit of that in the paper, that one of the problems, uh, the procedural problems of the commission is that it had not really settled on a model for justice. It's not yet clear. <laughs> You'd think they would figure that out in advance. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. I how was, are you going to tell people to come forward? I was really if... struck by the fact that yeah. they had left this particular part um, kind of unsettled. And I think it would. I think it was part of the negotiations to actually allow this to happen in the first place is not to have it very defined mm-hmm. so that it wouldn't kind of cause a problem to some people, particularly parts of the old regime that are still there. Um, but that is definitely affecting its um, its utility. And this is one of the real issues. Like, mm-hmm. now there are thousands of people who had given testimonies. It's not clear what would happen to these testimonies. Are the testimonies made public or are they... Um kept private. And yep. if they're made public, mm-hmm. how much identifying information is concealed? Mm-hmm. That they are still p- private in mm-hmm. theory. Um, and they have the number. I have, I have had um, access to them. So actually researchers or journalists could have access to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see the initial. So it's kind of anonymous. However, there have been stories. Uh, even there was a recent story in the New York Times uh, with faces and people mm-hmm. who had come forward and spoke about this. So I think a lot of the victims are actually willing to come forward. Uh, when I interviewed the head of the uh, commission, uh, Siham Ben Sidrin, she's a veteran human rights activist, uh, she was very much enthousi- enthusiastic in the beginning to kind of airing some of these testimonies on TV. Mm-hmm. She's kind of like more leaning into the model of truth rather than an amnesty. Uh, but there are other members of the commission who are, and some of the people and some of the victims as well, who would like to see a more pr- kind of mm-hmm. justice, um, more like justice uh, process. And are the um, these um, uh, the mobilizational campaigns that you talked about, where do they stand on that? Are mm-hmm. they trying to increase publicity or are they really focused on trying to influence the judicial process? I think both. Uh, I think they want to, they are working uh, in terms of advocacy and increasing publicity and letting people know that mm-hmm. this was happening on such a mass scale. And they want to have some kind of a justice. Um, I talked to one of them and I was like, when I was asking her, how do you think, how do you imagine mm-hmm. a justice, a process of justice for this? Uh, she was like thinking about like holding not just in the not the individual people accountable, but maybe the Ministry of Interior under Ben Ali. Kind of like I got people are thinking about the chain of command and whether you know whether we should kind of prosecute mm-hmm. everybody who works in the Ministry of Interior or should we kind of prosecute those who gave the orders. So these conversations are happening. Uh, I don't think they are developed enough. And let's remember that the commission was established in twenty fourteen. And definitely right after the the election, the the last presidential and parliamentary elections, 
where Nidat Tunis kind of swept and they entered into a coalition government uh, with uh, Nahda, I think both parties are sort of reluctant to start opening these files uh, and kind of like that, and that, that, that would unsettle the transition. Well, absolutely fascinating. And um, so, uh, Hinda, thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, this is really, really interesting research. We've been speaking with Hind Ahmed Zaki, a PhD candidate at the University of Washington. And uh, so thank you. Thanks.